Let's jump in and start with prayer. All heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of Truth, who art ever present and fill us all things, treasure blessings and giver of life. Come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, a good one. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So we've been inching along here. This is the third class because the last class I missed from uh, not feeling well that evening. Uh, but this uh, class, I want to try to get through chapter one, which I thought we were further along. So I'm going to make every effort to try to get through chapter one. And we're at verse six. So we'll see. Uh, let's uh, l- let me set the stage just a little bit. So Paul uh, is writing to Titus, whom he would have known as we know from uh, the uh, Timothy letters that Paul has put Titus with a particular mission in Crete of creating order because there is chaos uh, nipping at the heels of the church. And so Titus uh, is being commissioned basically by Paul to go and appoint uh, bishops uh, because we've talked about elder, bishop, this kind of interchangeable word at this time, uh, overseer uh, in different places in Crete because there's problems, because there is division that is starting to come up uh, as humans are wont to do their, you know, the chaos, the entropy. (laughs) Uh, You start something, then other people see that something is happening and uh, they see opportunity. So we are going to go through uh, first the qualifications, what Paul is telling Titus. These are the kind of men that you want to seek out uh, to be able to put uh, in charge, uh, stewards of God's house. Uh, we've, in the past two, we've done excurses, excursi, excursi, I don't know how you say that in plural. We've done many excursuses. 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 Oh. So. (laughs) You're welcome. uh, So I I would like to keep that to a minimum, but we'll see. Okay. Because almost every, as I was thinking about, if I was writing about some of these things, I would want to dip even further back into the Old Testament. You could write a very long paper just on what it means to be a steward of God. Right. So we're not going to do that. You're welcome to do that. I encourage, uh, as I usually do in these things, really knowing the Old Testament brings a whole lot of light into knowing the New Testament. On some level, that's kind of like a duh statement. But you'd be amazed at how much stuff you can read, uh, commentaries, etc., on the New Testament. And there just seems to be no real mention (laughs) of the Old Testament. It's just like, oh... Uh, this Greek word means this, and in Greek literature it means blah, 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 but like mm-hmm. not attending to the Old Testament background. So let's uh, go ahead and read. Uh, let's set this up so that we kind of understand, especially for those who haven't been here before, uh, by starting in verse 5. And let's go ahead and read to the end of the chapter. Could somebody read 5 through 9? Bueller. Okay, Okay, loudly. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. 
If a man is blameless, the husband of but one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Somebody like to read through the rest of the chapter there? Yeah, I'll do that. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure things, all things are pure. Excuse me, let me try that again. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So I have quite a diptych here of this is what you should be putting in place or this is the kind of man that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And then because basically he's got to deal with this other kind of guy uh, who is, and we'll hit some of these particular details because a lot of questions come up. What, what is he talking about? Those of the circumcision. Uh, what does it mean? Jewish fables and stuff. But let's start off with... Um, <coughs> Just kind of walking through these qualifications, uh, I say qualifications. Um, this is kind of he's painting a portrait here, like a picture of what kind of man you're looking for. Uh, it's not. I, I don't think the church uh, has uh, a kind of list in this way, right? Like somebody isn't might be a little struggling one of these areas but so it's not like this is a checklist where somebody's going to be put in a position they need to be at 100 percent, or otherwise they get overlooked this is the beginning uh terry had mentioned earlier and i i think i've talked about this in general maybe not in this class uh, first and second timothy titus the kind of pastoral epistles this is the beginning in the early church of uh what later we would call kind of the canonical literature of the church right uh, the canons of the church. Uh, for you, those of you who don't know, canons are basically kind of the governing, um, I'll say laws, but the way we think about law now is not really how they would have thought about it, but kind of, I would say, governing wisdom, right? This is best practices. This is how we do things. So if there's somebody who um, uh, is in a situation uh, where he has blame, right? So let's just talk about blame, blameless. In uh, other places in the pastoral epistles, you have that a man who's going to lead in the church, there shouldn't be people in the community who could be like, but he's a scoundrel. <laughs> he cheated me, right? Like there's something wrong, like that there's a, a, folks who want to, you know, see him in the courts, right? Uh, there, this is something that comes up even liturgically. Uh, when we pronounce, when somebody's ordained, what do the people say in response? Worthy. Right? Worthy. Oxios, right? Mm -hmm. 
this is partly because uh, it is like when somebody's ordained, it's not just the bishop has decided somebody's okay, but it is something that is also needs to be an assent if things are running well from the parish and the people saying like, yes, right? We, we know that this guy is blameless and we could go through the Old Testament and talk about all sorts of situations of those who uh, are reckoned as blameless or just or righteous. Uh, this isn't just like uh, something inward or focused towards the church, right? This is something because you, this leadership is something that's known in the community. It's not just um, coffee hour, right? <laughs> Uh, there is in falling on this, which seems uh, it's very related, especially in the ancient world. A lot of our ideas about what somebody, well, it's not that long ago. We go back to this idea of respect and the South or like in general, there's more of a <coughs> culture of like, this is how things are supposed to go. And this is how people in polite society interact with each mm -hmm. other. And we've been steadily losing those things. Mm -hmm. This is the same in the ancient world, right? Like you have, uh, someone who's an upstanding citizen in the community, they're going to operate in a certain way. So what does this have to do? Why would you think this would then where Paul goes to husband of one wife with faithful children? Is it necessary, the husband of one wife? Faithful children? If, if, if the people in your own home can't, if you're not blameless in your own home, I mean, blameless in the rest of your community. I mean, it's kind of a hard thing to do. I've always thought of it as first vows. First vows. Vows. I mean, in words, if oh, I see, I yeah, see. Uh, um, I heard vows like uh, I, I a <laughs> second yeah, consonant. Uh, if someone's keeping their marriage vows, it's not a bad start. Right. You know, um, it, advice given to me before, or that we would talk about the seminary is, you need to be faithful to. Uh, the sacraments and orders that you received them. Hmm. That's sort of coming Right. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, you're baptized first, then you're married, if you're married when you're ordained, right? And then you're ordained. If you can't keep your baptismal uh, reality in check, your marriage is going to fall apart. And if marriage isn't going well, then how could you govern? How could you actually lead in God's house? This is kind of judgy. It's a high judgy. I mean, like, I, I, I generally our culture doesn't see, like we we love to make exceptions to things. And I think Paul makes a pretty like this is the kind of person, and that you need to have like if there's something that has gone wrong or etc. Note to self, right? Like there's flags. So something is off. It seems kind of quite merciful, though, for him to require that early because the priesthood has, I mean, they answer for, I mean, you're responsible and you have a higher calling than your average layperson. So you... I don't know about higher calling, different calling. Different calling, but you are responsible for the things that you teach at a different level than we are. Like, so I, th I think it's merciful for him to say, if you can't even do it in your home, you know, you're going to answer for that. But what are you going to do if you try to do it in a church as a priest? Right, that's a whole other level of calling that you're going to have to answer for. So it's Father, kind of merciful to say. says to the priest, the ordination right when he puts the piece of the consecration. Uh, yeah, when he gives him a part of the lamb, the bishop after the ordination, and oh, guard, I forgot yeah. exactly. Basically, guard, guard this until the second coming. Guard this yeah. until the second coming. Yeah. Other than that, 
Well, that's a good image of uh, what we'll hit in just a minute with a steward of God's house, right? Like you're a steward of God. There is, uh, Paul uses this in Corinthians, like there's a stewardship of the mysteries of God where he talks about it. And there is, um, you know, when I lift up the lamb and say holy things are for the holy, that is an invitation, but also a challenge, right? Like maybe challenge isn't the right word, but it's like a, a word to those like this is for those who are pursuing him, who are seeking after him. Uh, it is what the priesthood and what this leadership is about. It's, it's not a bureaucratic role. This is not something where you're doing paperwork and pushing things along. And if it goes in that direction, then things go bad really quickly. Uh, but that there is a very specific personal investment that is necessary and again, I want to make, you know, we're talking about qualifications for an elder or for a bishop, but all of this is basic Christian 101 things that we should be aiming for, right? Uh, why do you think he says husband of one wife? Do you think that's something noteworthy? or In that age it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, Culturally, the multiple, it, yeah. I mean, and just what kind of weirdness do you want? Going east for one for weird form of marriage, or going into Rome. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, which makes our current sexual revolution look like Boy Scout camp. Right. There's a good book. I'm forgetting the author. It's on my shelf right now. From Shame to Sin, where he's basically documenting yes. the shift. Yeah. We think that things are crazy now, and what Terry is saying, like. You, if you had the power and the money, you could do whatever you want, and there isn't really much of anything that anybody could say no. Well, if you own people, right, then there's that, (laughs) and you have free access. (laughs) So we're talking about a very like all of our ideas of permission, consent, all of that stuff are ultimately going back to like Christian ideas that Mm -hmm. people are made in the image of God and should be respected. They have human rights, right? They have dignity because they exist. That was not the ancient world. So I think there is, uh, he's painting a picture of somebody who is faithful, who has uh, done his responsibilities or uh, has fulfilled his duties to his own children. This is deep in Israel's history, right? Like if you go to Deuteronomy, it's about teaching your children. This is the way of the Lord. This is um, what God asks of us. That's why who leads uh, the Sabbath, who, it is the family, right? It is, these are all family rhythms that are important. Uh, St. John Chrysostom just kind of echoes this when he says, uh, how can one be a teacher if he can't teach his own children, right? We should observe what care he bestows upon children. For he who cannot be the instructor of his own children, how should he be the teachers of others? If he cannot keep in order those whom he has had with him from the beginning, whom he has brought up, and over whom he had power both by the laws and by nature, how will he be able to benefit those without? For the incompetency of the father had not been great, he would not have allowed those to become bad, whom from the first he had under his power. So I would say one thing is 4th century stuff is quite different than 21st century America and the realities that we wrestle with are a little bit more insidious, but they still, I think, provide us with a great challenge, or at least a goal uh, for those of us who are fathers, 
grandfathers, or like we have a responsibility in the household. Uh, and that is something that is a great duty for us. I gotta say that bothers me. Why does it bother you? <laughs> I, have a, I have an adult son who's extremely insubordinate. That's that, that's that's why. And, I, and it, kind of, it kind of bothers me because there's an implication here that I am somehow responsible for him falling. And like I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. I, I'm willing to accept responsibility for him when he was five, but not when he's 38. I think that's what Paul is talking about. Talk about five-year-olds. No, I, mm, I don't know if he's talking. I think it's those who are in his household that those he who has household? responsibility for. Okay. And then once you go out and make your own household, how can you be held accountable if somebody <coughs> apostatizes or if somebody goes whatever routes that they're going to go? It's also the case that you can be disqualified for things that are no fault of your own, too, right? And I think someone said earlier that these are sort of merciful commandments, right? If if something's going wrong in your household, don't take on an additional responsibility, even if it's not your own, even if it's not your fault, right? Um, so it's not necessarily an implication of responsibility. Yeah. Or blame. It's not necessarily an implication oh, of blame. I see what you're saying. That kind of goes back to what Father was talking about, is about, about doing the... Uh, Sacraments of order. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you if you haven't been able to completely fulfill your duties to your household. It just means that you're presently being called to fulfill your duties to your household rather than being called to fulfill your duties someplace else or some duties someplace else. Well, and I think this is also where it gets to. Uh, I had a whole class at seminary that was about sacraments and canon law. So the way that this develops in the church and how the mind of the church uh, develop. Uh, yeah, sure, I'll say develop. Um, the, the way that the church uh, approaches these things, when it comes to the point of an ordination and being able to say axios, there, there's a kind of worthiness, and there's a particular worthiness that is invested in somebody who's ordained because they have more responsibility, they're, they're, like you were saying, like this isn't just the qualifications to be a Christian, although on some level, like these are all goals, right? Mm -hmm. But there's something when you move into particular ordained ministry, but I think we can think outside of even ordained ministry, if we're gonna be in places of authority within the church or responsibilities in the church, that requires something out of us. And there are times where we have to say like, my life is in such a situation or there's stuff going on at home right now that I can't take this on and being able to learn your boundaries to be able to step back from that. Um, there is for this husband of one wife, for example, if Chelsea, if Chelsea was to die or if we were divorced, I would not be in a position that I could remarry mm -hmm. because that's it for me. Unless I was asked to be laicized and to seek like to be remarried. So there is within the canonical tradition and the, the tradition of the church is basically, think about this pastorally. Can you imagine me trying to date people as a, as a priest? Ah. Hmm. Well, good outfit. Yeah. I mean, good op-ed, is that what you said? No, good outfit. Right. <laughs> I do get lots of, 
eyebrows raised. <laughs> well, they usually think I'm Roman Catholic, but okay. Uh, one of the three men just nominated to be the new Metropolitan of the Antiochian Archdiocese is a widower. Mm -hmm. Bishop John. And my wife Deborah has heard him on two occasions leading retreats at the Antiochian Village on the subject of marriage. You know, and he would obviously have experiences and things in his life as a bishop that would not be typical of all, although I think there are at least one or two other widowers who are bishops right now in the United States in canonical orthodoxy, I believe. So this then brings up, yes, I, I like Bishop John a lot. He came to the seminary and I've, I even did a, um, uh, I'll say a continuing education credit with him a while back via Zoom, but there is in, um, as he's talking about a widower, the, the way the church <coughs> developed, uh, bishops in the Orthodox Church are not married. Mm -hmm. This became a move that the church did uh, mostly because it was seen as the best way to order things in God's house. Uh, it's not a requirement as in like this is like has the level of scripture, but it is the tradition and what we functionally do. Could somebody be uh, consecrated as a bishop who was married? Well, the synod would have to approve of it because nobody gets made a bishop unless the, the whole synod approves. So, uh, but the Orthodox Church has not <coughs> gone the direction of the Roman or the Latin Church where there is basically all priesthood uh, must be celibate. Uh, mm -hmm. Random question, but uh, like, when did uh, was that a uni when did that become universal in like the Eastern churches, or was it like fairly early on, or is it or were like, mean, the Georgians like it's not the fourth century you know, different <laughs> for a while? It was but, the sixth. Hmm? There, uh, um, sixth what about century? sex? Oh, you no. said sex. when did, <laughs> when did I was like sex is not involved begin? here. When did monasticism begin? Because I thought historically. There was a link between the concept of the bishops yeah. being the pastors to the pastors, I mean, and that fairly early on there was some connection to mon to monastic elders. Uh, not that I am aware of. Okay. There, the more of the traditional way of te teasing it out, you see this in like uh, Athanasius and Anthony, right? Mm -hmm. It's more of like the monastic community supports and upholds in the bishop, they like work together or they fight. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, so what over time what happened was the best candidates that were seen by the people were coming uh, mostly from the monasteries. Mm -hmm. Now, priesthood, that has always been. It's just, you need to be married before you're ordained. Oh, yeah. So once you are just for the, like, once you are ordained, that's it. Whatever state that you're ordained in, that's it. Oh, well. if, I love Frederica's line in one of her said that if you if yes, you uh, too. Mm -hmm. if if you're an Orthodox woman and you really feel that God somehow might want you to be married to a priest, just go to a 24-hour restaurant near the seminary toward the end of senior year <laughs> and be, you know, sit there late at night reading a copy of the early church fathers, and you're probably some people. Are, some guys are going to at least talk. He's just speed dating at that point. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> just rolling through. If you're actually getting good discernment, then you would not. <laughs> I know guys who got married by like their second or third year because they came in pretty quickly after undergrad. And 
if they would be, it would be a year or two, they might be a pastoral assistant in a parish or do like youth or something. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they get married and then the bishop might make them a deacon quickly, but yep. then maybe wait a year or two just to see how things go. Because it's like those first two years of marriage is especially like yeah. in- interesting. Do what? <laughs> Make sure it's going to last. Yeah. Uh, it's a transition. Especially now. Well, we <laughs> That's have, a transition. Yeah, and it's you a go transition. immediately into yeah. ordained ministry and going and getting sent to be a, a rector of a parish and, and maybe just have got married. Ch- maybe have children thrown at the same time. Yes. Yeah. So. We had a man at Holy Cross who stayed on the altar after finishing seminary for at least seven years because he really felt called to marriage. And he stayed there as a subdeacon, hmm. was active in youth ministry and stuff for years and years, and then met the right woman. Is now priest in Annapolis, hmm. chaplain to the uh, Naval Academy, uh, and oh, has like yeah. five kids. God's but time. He waited <laughs> with the bishop's guidance. He waited. Did you ask when century monasticism began? Yeah. You get one guess. It's before Christ. Hmm. Elijah. <laughs> yeah. okay. Fourth. It more or less. No, it's before. No, no, way before and fourth. No, 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 no. The monasticism as we know it. Largely, but even, largely I mean, because even, a reaction against Constantine. Well, Anthony was. Anthony would be the one, if you point to anybody as the first, would be in the. Two forty six. Haven't read the Life of Paul no. yet. Well, right. So but that was. Even, yeah. I don't want to get sidetracked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, were, there were guys out there when Anthony went into the desert. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, they were there. <laughs> but he's kind of the guy that goes. Oh, he was the move. But the the, the let's. I'm not going to go there. So, uh, let's keep. For a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self willed, not quick tempered, not given to wine, not violent. Not greedy for money. What do you all make of these knots here? Can you imagine somebody who's trying to pastor a community who's self-willed and (laughs) quick-tempered? I mean, we can imagine it. I'm sure we can (laughs) entertain the thought, right? Uh, the way that Chrysostom talks about it is like it's it's tyranny. If you have somebody who is beholden to their passions in the, these kind of ways, then it's going to be chaos and it's going to be bad for the community, right? If someone, this is how he talks, you know, uh, for a ruler without, as he rules by law and compulsion, perhaps does not consult the wishes of those under his rule, right? There's rulers out there who just rule by law and compulsion. But he who ought to rule men with their own consent, speaking of clergy, right? Who will be thankful for his rule if he so conduct himself as to do everything of his own will and share counsels with no one, makes his presidency tyrannical (coughs) rather than popular, right? On some level, this is just basic leadership stuff (laughs) that Paul is saying, like, if you're really self-absorbed, if you really love to throw tables or throw stuff, like... If you are a drunkard, uh, if you, uh, you know, violent, or especially this is going to come up with the opposition to false teachers in the next part of this chapter, if you want money, then these are all opportunities <clears throat> to really make a big splash <laughs> and a lot of problems, right? It seems also, too, that he's, inst- I mean, he's kind of instructing people that don't know who haven't really spent any time with Jesus or, you know, because there's not email or... You know, 
video they're conferencing. Jesus, what right? you? well, they, nobody <laughs> like there's not like there's there's not like a bunch of people getting together where you can all read about Jesus. So he has to instruct them on the way Jesus lived his life, and these are the all descriptions about the way Christ led his life. And so you have a whole bunch of people, right? All the apostles, and, and this is new, to, these are new communities, right? right? These are new Christians, right. and they've, they've never met Christ. They don't know who he is or what he's like, and he's explaining to them the kind of life that Christ led, because you're all ultimately talking about the priesthood, which is an extension of the apostles and then the handing out of those keys to the bishops and the priests. He is to be, so we had all those negatives, right? Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy. But they must be hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. I think with the pictures you have, somebody who's either oriented towards their self or is oriented outside of themselves, right? You have somebody who's hospitable, who is uh, in self-control, or at least uh, is trending in that direction, right? All of these things. Why would he need to be a lover of what is good? So he doesn't start doing bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. avoids, avoids the scandal and keeps the image and is good at being the, the shepherd of the people. But also it's like, what is good? There's one good, right? Titus would definitely have to know what good is yeah. to take these people out. Right, because like me looking at what is good, I'm not there. But it has to be a special person to know what good is, and it's a big question. I don't know if it's necessary. Well, let me ask you: What do you think it means that it's a special person? A person really close to God and knows what God's good is, opposed to my personal good. So I maybe saying somebody who's not just a neophyte. Right, because can you imagine? Like you, you need to choose somebody who has actually walked the walk and not just talked the talk. Because we're going to see there's folks who like to come in and talk a lot, uh, but he's not. He's talking about you need to. We know a a a, tr a tree when it's good because it's fruitful. You'll know them by their fruit, right? You need to be able to see that somebody is actually practicing and following Christ. Uh, there is in that self-control and that soberness and that justice, that holiness, a lover of what is good is somebody who uh, I think is also in, implicit in that as a kind of, they have some discernment, right? They, they can say that is a good and that is, eh, maybe if we did this, like it, it can be heading towards the good. Because if you're in leadership, a lot of it is trying to, how do we get things heading in the direction of good? Because you're managing people, <laughs> and all of the the situations and chaos and situations that we're all in. The Narnia quote just popped into my head when Aslan is in the castle and the statues. He's breathing on the statues to bring them back to life. He breathes on the feet, and Lucy or Susie, I forget who, says to him, "What about the rest?" He says, "It's okay. If the feet are okay, the rest will follow." I took care of the feet. Mm -hmm. I like that. It's interesting to me that the, the, the first thing listed here is hospitable. Why is that interesting? 
Well, I mean, if I were to make a list in order of importance, I don't know that I would put hospitable first. And I find that interesting. I mean, that's before a lover of what is good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if this means anything, but it seems but interesting. What do think? That all is a vagabond. Right. <laughs> Paul is a vagabond? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you um, might be onto something. I mean, hospitality is an enormously important Jewish virtue. Um, I mean, Besides a Greek virtue too, right? Yes, yeah. it's a Greek virtue as well. I mean, if you look at um, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, there's also there's a major tone of hospitality there about because we get that from Sodom. Ezekiel is where we get that aspect too, right? Mm-hmm. I think later there's some refers back to that episode and yeah. talks about the yes. inhospitable nature of what was going on. Yeah, so that that's. It is interesting that it's first, but yeah. it's like a huge thing in the ancient world. Hmm. So what is hospitality? It's an industry, right? You get a degree in it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think it means what we currently believe it to mean in America. We just have people over and hang out. I think it, yeah. if you're not doing it with the downtrodden and the poor and the weak and the people that don't have it, it's not hospitality. Um, for people that can't do for themselves, I don't think it's hospitality. Uh, you can call it entertaining, I think is a better word, but... <laughs> Um, hospitality requires you to do something that stretches you, not, not, um, and that you can be stretched, of course, with people in your own church, but it's to bring people in that don't have, right? And I don't, I don't think it's hospitality otherwise. It's welcome, could be, welcoming it could the be. stranger. Is that right. what you can understand? Yeah, you're sacrificing your own, yeah. uh, your own livelihood, right? And giving it to somebody else, basically. So it's a denial of the self. I guess. There, there's a great book. I mean, you got to push aside the politics, but um, a woman wrote a book called Hos- Hospitality Comes with a House Key. Um, she lives in South Carolina, um, but she writes a whole book about how she, you know, she has a whole story about how she converted from being a lesbian and all this stuff and got married to a, 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 par- a pastor and got converted, but it started because a pastor just opened his house. And so she started letting people just come in, and so she has people from the neighborhood and downtrodden over all the time like weekly people come in they eat every Wednesday or Thursday and there's like people just come in out of our house it's like this idea of letting opening up your house and letting people come in I mean it's out of your discernment but it's not this thing where it's only people you know that can afford it but that stretches you and you know that makes you uncomfortable and because that's not where God is anyway do you all think of any Old Testament examples of hospitality? We have the icon of the hospitality of Abraham. Abraham. Yeah. And where is that? That gets brought up in the New Testament and it gets referenced, right? You entertain the angels unawares, oh, right. to use the King James language. Yeah. At least that's how I remember or <laughs> recall it, yeah. right? That idea that is throughout, not just you know the Old Testament, but it is broadly conceived virtue but there's a particularity I think uh, it's written into the Old Testament law for hospitality too the aliens the strangers mm-hmm. those who are without to uh, give of yourself <coughs> make room for others uh, yeah I think that's a, a good point to bring that out and I think that is always the hospitality um, in the early church, what very quickly happened, bishops were um, have hospitals come from bishops. 
specifically mm -hmm. St. Basil, mm -hmm. where there was a specific hospitality that was given to those who are sick. Uh, when there was plague time, when there was other issues, there was a very uh, famous, I forget if it's Rome or Constantinople, but basically there was a plague because regularly these, this would have happened, right? There had been a great sickness and people are dying. And so people had means, they'd leave the city. They'd go out to the countryside and just let the riffraff basically deal with themselves, right? It was the Christians who stayed in the, in the city. It was the Christians who actually then opened up houses of hospitality, hospitals, who create the space to actually tend to those who are dying. Because it goes back to that same shift that we were talking about in regards to sexuality, to sexual issues. Mm -hmm. Christians made people just for existing valuable mm -hmm. because they were a soul, because they were made in God's image. And that was one of the things that turned the world upside down, to use the language of Acts, because mm -hmm. Christians actually attended to people that gave them nothing. Right, that did not uh, extend their social status, that did not pay for things, like, et cetera. So this is why we have even a class of saints, like, right, the holy unmercenaries, because they gave hospitality, they gave uh, as much as they could, you know, in healing uh, to people who couldn't pay for it. Did you call them unmercenaries? Mm -hmm. So not mercenary. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds weird, doesn't it? I wish there was a better uh, English. Oh, <coughs> I actually like it. The first time really? I heard it, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. They don't take pay. It took it, me a while to really figure it out, to be honest. It <laughs> implies that if you take pay, you're being a mercenary. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're being mercenary. If you take pay, like the unmercenary physicians, if you yeah. take payment for this, you're being mercenary. You're like a mercenary. And they, they're not like that. So they're, I, I enjoy the, the language, even though it's a, little, it's a little cumbersome, but I like it. Yeah. It's just, I wish there was a better English instead of this kind of like unmercenary yeah. <laughs> just a country because I think most people go mercenary what like the they, they, the un yeah. gets dropped off I just I think Mennonite but that's <laughs> it just <laughs> I hear that term that's the first thing that leaps in my mind when you just said that about the mercenaries about them giving their life reminds me of the passage that says no greater love has a man for them no greater Love has a man than this, that he gives up his life for someone, which is the ultimate hospitality. Right? So we have this portrait of someone who is responsible, who is known in the community, uh, who has, I'll say, I don't know about family cohesion, but at least not dissipation and kind of chaos in the family that's in his household, right? Uh, who also doesn't have very obvious public vices, uh, but is not just uh, an empty slate, like he doesn't do these things, but he actually is pursuing and a lover of good uh, and actually lives the life. But there's one more thing, and this is important uh, for Paul, right? Is that he holds fast the faithful word as has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Because you need somebody like this who's going to be willing to say it like it is because of what they're up against in this particular situation. So what is going on? There's throughout the early church, there's a lot of different uh, challenges uh, in the church, right? There's the moral issues. Uh, there's the general, I'll say kind of the general dissipation and chaos of life and things that happen, etc. right? Uh, and then there is false teachers, 
this is throughout the New Testament, and this is something that is dealt with uh, throughout the rest of, I'll say, the canonical literature, etc. Kind of who's in the church, who actually has authorization, or who is actually somebody that you can trust, and who do you need to be wary of, right? And so let's, uh, I'm going to read what is going on here. There are insubordinate, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So there is a particular subset uh, here in Crete uh, of, what does it mean of the circumcision? The group of, group of Jews. Those who are circumcised. Jews, right? Yeah. Of the party of the circumcision, right? We can think of this, there's already issues very early in the book of Acts, right? Uh, where it's the Gentiles and the Jews were in this new body that is the body of Christ, but we still got to figure out how all of this is going to work. Where does the law play in this, uh, etc.? So this is coming up here. This uh, is also shows up in uh, First Timothy. This is one of those thematic issues that's in the early church. If you have one issue of something like Gnosticism or like the beginning of Gnosticism, and I say that very loosely, of denying that Jesus actually came in the flesh. Right? You see this in the Johannine epistles, First John, where he talks about there's already the spirit of Antichrist is those who deny that Jesus uh, comes in the flesh. Right, You have another aspect of kind of Judaizing teachers, which this is very Pauline problematic. Right, uh, What do you think uh, is going on here? I'll just step back for a second since we've all read this. What, what, what do you think, from what you know of scripture of the early church, what do you think is going on here? Yeah, sure. Um, That's what you think is a question. There you go. <laughs> um, so, talking about Judaizers in particular, um, the question I have is, is he referring to people um, sowing division from out, like, people outside the church? Jews like, or those who are in the church? Or people in the church causing yeah. problems? I have a related question. Is, is, yeah, is there on Crete a separation between Jews and in the church? Are they meeting in a synagogue on Saturday and having their own Christian liturgy on Sunday? Great question. Is that what they're doing? I mean, how yeah, should we think are. about these things? Yeah, they are. That, that's what I yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah they yeah. are. you got to be really careful with this language because when he says those of the circumcision, he's referring, to my understanding, he's referring... <clears throat> to those Jews who have become Christians mm -hmm. who insist that in becoming a Christian anybody must, else who yeah. becomes a Christian in particular the Gentile any Gentile who becomes a Christian must first go through the rite of circumcision and do the other things to become a Jew did what I meant to say make sense the argument was whether let me back up for a moment okay I, I, I Excuse me, but this, this is kind of a thing with me. It's, I think it's very important for us to remember Paul's a Jew. What? Paul <laughs> is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. Every single one of the apostles is a Jew. So obviously, Paul here is not referring to all Jews. Okay? He's. The church originally grew up with this group of Jews, the apostles, teaching in the temple, teaching other Jews. The first Christians were Jews. It then spread to the Gentiles. When it spread to the Gentiles, a controversy arose about, okay, these Gentiles want to become Christians. 
Don't they first have to become Jews like us? That's where the dispute arose. And Paul led the party that said, no, they don't have to be circumcised and do the other things to become Jewish first. They can come directly into Christianity. So when he, said, when he says, especially those of the circumcision, he's referring to those Christians who were Jews before they were Christians who were insisting that Gentiles become Jews before they become Christians. What? Is that fair, Father? Yes, and that's why it's a little bit more than just circumcision. And I know you, because it's yeah, all related. Yeah, I kept saying circumcision and the quote other things. Right. So the other things is what uh, uh, pops yeah. up here more. Well, right. So it's in Galatians. It's a lot about circumcision, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't come up here in Titus. It's not about whether or not circumcision. I'm sure that's in the mix. That's not what Paul specifically brings up here. What he brings up is let's go down to verse 14 and 15 not giving heed to jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth to the pure all things are pure but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but even their mind and conscience are defiled division on the roof of the clean and the division on the roof of the food that's clean and the food that's unclean right exactly that kind of stuff isn't he also trying to overcome this idea that like you still not not understanding that the original circumcision was was a foreshadowing of what would happen for Christ when he would be baptized and then we would be baptized to become Christian right so that the new circumcision is circumcision of the heart through baptism and they thought well you still have to be you still have to be you know, snipped, and the case is no, you don't, because that was a foreshadowing, and now it's, it's a, it's a, it's everything. It's your whole, it's your whole being being baptized, which is the new circumcision. And so I think that's really Paul's, what he's arguing is that's Paul's argument, yeah. Right. Well, and he's, I think he's arguing here about letting if you if you don't have somebody that can't combat these kind of arguments and doesn't have the ability to do that, how is he going to be able to lead a church in in a midst of the kind of stuff that's going on in this, of these really, really challenging things, let alone, you know, well, things that I, come I, up I in the future. Paul, I, and this is just for, this is just, maybe I'm off base here, but, but I've just gotten that, I've spent some time with this, and I've really gotten the impression that Paul's real big concern, it really comes through in Romans. Paul had this big concern about trying to find a way to make peace between these disputing parties, the peace between the, the, the parties the, 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 the parties that said you know well if you're a Gentile you can you know, become baptized become a Christian and you don't have to be circumcised and mm -hmm. obey all the dietary laws and the Jews that said no because because it was a huge 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 problem at the time and so that's when I read this stuff that, that's what I've always got in mind that's what I always hear Paul saying is it Paul's goal in addressing anybody is he's trying to find a way to make peace between these parties and it was a real real bad problem. Um, what do we know about the Cretan community? What, what, there was what, a very large Jewish community. In there Crete. was. Okay. That's Ta right. Tacitus even thought, the Roman historian even thought, that Crete was the original homeland of the Jews. Because there, there were so, so many, many there. Jews in Crete. Okay. This is very so. I've been in Brooklyn. <laughs> 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 right. That's true. I know. I've been there. So there's a million Jews in Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. Well, because West they Paul got Beach. away from me. West yeah. Paul Beach. But that's just an extension of Brooklyn. Brooklyn, <laughs> Southern Brooklyn. Do we, I, just a question of curiosity. Do we have any idea, like, what kind of Jewish fables he's referring to? I mean, I... 
I mean, I'm glad you I, asked. I, I, yes. What I, is I that word that's translated that. fables too? I mean, fables has a certain connotation in English. If I had my laptop, I can look up a logos, but I, I didn't look up the Greek on it. Sorry. Okay. I guess I'm just kind of curious because uh, I mean, this. I hope this doesn't like step on any toes. I don't think it would, but like I've I read, really believe strongly in Jewish fables, so watch out. <laughs> well, the, so I've heard the of the it's either the Talmud or the Mishnah, and it's 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 weird. <laughs> so, well, so all right, so and so like uh, is, being there, orthodox, is there a lot of this kind of literature circling oh, around that yeah. we just no longer have? I can show is you. Is he le- talking about stuff like this? Like, I mean, I hold on. I, I don't right know here. much about Judaism, well, logos. So. Jewish fables. There's the Greek word for myths. I would assume that's fables, right? So it says myths here. Yeah. If it's mythos, that just means story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, but that's the logos it's Greek mythos. word for it. Oh, it's mythos. It's yeah. mythos, yeah. yeah. It's mythos. 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 Yeah. So it's just it's a story. Yeah, it's a story. Yeah. But the question would be, what are those? What are the Jewish stories that he's referring to? Right, but, but fables are different. Right, right, right. right. Oh. Oh yeah. So that's a good series. So so when I bring this out, this Some isn't all, but I'm just giving you an example. This is Jewish literature, mm-hmm. deuterocanonical around the time of New Testament scripture. Yeah. Okay. That's, right. That's, this is just what's in English. I'm sure there's more, right? Like, <laughs> just to give an example, like, so if you read into the Enoch literature, if you read into like Jubilees, and you have a whole lot of arguing about a whole lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. When, because of this, when is Yom Kippur? Like, when is the day of redemption? Because if we messed up our calendar, if the Romans messed up our calendar, we got to make sure that we find out the real date. Then you get into all sorts of expansions and like filling in the gaps and all sorts of stuff. Now, what I would say, I don't think Paul is saying here, you know, maybe you like third Enoch or mm-hmm. fourth whatever, right? And, but the, rea- the problem is these folks are coming in and they're kind of, obs- they're obsessing about it. And they want to sit around and argue about this, mm. right? And they want people to, like, this is a part and parcel. Not only do you need to keep the law, but you also need to subscribe to these interpretations of these things. When we think of Judaism now, if we've thought about it that much, we might think of Hasidic Jews. We might think of Reformed Jews. This time, there was a whole, Judaism is Judaisms, right? There's all yeah. sorts of stuff going on of varied levels where they would I wouldn't say anathematize but like they're not on the same page the whole Qumran community right they're out in the desert and what are they railing against the whole time the temple the temple right and all the other Jews are like how could you rail against the temple like it's the temple (laughs) and the Qumran community is like have you read the prophets because what do they rail against the temple right (laughs) and then there's another temple that's down uh, in Egypt that the Jews Mm -hmm. in exile in Egypt even built so there's not just the temple in Jerusalem there's another te- and I think there's even another temple somewhere else so there is a whole lot of stuff and I think Paul's whole point here is he's talking about the type of people it's not that you have like a scholar of Enoch literature right like Jewish uh, ideas of expanding uh, what it means for the, f- the 
ramifications of the fall of man and ba- like different interpretations of Babel, that kind of stuff, <clears throat> is that these guys are coming in and they are subverting households. They're creating division, right? They're teaching things uh, that they want. What is his emphasis here, especially besides idle talk uh, and deception, dishonest gain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're shysters. <laughs> I didn't mean that in this. <laughs> I realize that has. <laughs> I read that in yeah. the. Not just Yiddish, but I mean, even yet, like, I think they would even say, like, somebody who's making stuff up in order to get a following and make money. We, okay. we know all of Right? This is still a thing. <laughs> There's all sorts of people out there who want to sell you stuff or who want you to come and follow them. And go into schism with your bishop because they have the really right interpretation about this canon from the Fourth Ecumenical Council. Right. They're on the internet, mm-hmm. right? They might even have cassocks on and have beards and crosses and stuff. This exists. <laughs> uh, You're and not I think, suggesting there are preachers on TV that are making <laughs> money. Well, I'm even suggesting there's orthodox, yeah. orthodox, orthodox culture. Right. There, there is leaders. There is a whole. And this is always here, right? If you go to Russia, medieval Russia, do you know how many sects there were? There was all sorts of craziness going on. And a lot of them, actually, they got into like certain uh, strands of Judaism or Kabbalah or various things. And then they created all sorts of chaos in churches. Uh, it doesn't have to be just Jewish stuff. You can do this with all sorts of stuff, like neo-paganism or whatever, right? And it... It is usually stuff, as he talks about this, fables uh, and things that, where is Jesus in all this? I think that's really what Paul is like. Where, this is just, this is killing the church in order for people to sit around and kind of talk about stuff instead of actually doing the work of the church. You know, a few years ago, there was a, a fella started an Orthodox church down on uh, uh, Middlebrook. Really? Oh, yeah. It wasn't an actual Orthodox church. No, no. But he, uh, <laughs> no, but he, but he, but he was, he was father so and so, Russian crosses, icons. He wore black all the time, except when he wore his vestments on on Sunday. I, I met, I had a friend who asked me when he, when he found out he was Catholic friend. Before he found out I was Orthodox, had become Orthodox, he said, oh, have you been to so-and-so's church? And I said, where? And he said, the one down on Middlebrook. I said, Orthodox church down on Middlebrook? And, yeah, this guy went down there and DOC. set up shop. And DOC's coming back. There you go. Knoxville is the uh, capital C for the schismatic uh, claimed Orthodox uh, <laughs> sect. That's a thing. I, I couldn't Same. hear you. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't have my hearing aids. So, <clears throat> to bring us back, he, um, Chrysostom says this, he says, you know, in this context, he says, he who knows not how to combat the adversaries and to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and to beat down reasonings, he who knows not what he ought to teach with regard to right doctrine, far from him be the teacher's throne. Which is kind of like the middle portion of his commentary on what you were saying about avoiding people that do these kinds of things combating this kind of stuff coming up. Right. I mean, you need somebody strong who to be able to... Uh, the literal language of uh, their mouths must be stopped is they need to be muzzled in Greek. 
So there's a strength of what Paul is saying to Titus. You need to have guys who are going to actually deal with this stuff and not just kind of, because you're dealing with at least like there's a deceitfulness. There is a a money incentive here. The didache, to go back to uh, a work that is towards the tail end of the New Testament, uh, it has a whole section in there about prophets Mm -hmm. or guys who are going around who are saying, you know, this is what I see and all this, you know, this is even the Old Testament. There's all sorts of like, if a prophet says this is what's going to happen, it doesn't happen. You need to get rid of them, right? It's the same with if the prophet comes and the didache, if there's somebody who comes and they're like, want to be, but they're like, I just need money. I need money. They're like, no, let him go. But tell him to like, you know, beat it, scram. Because what is Paul's example for all of this? What is his proof in Corinthians about how he is actually true to apostolic? He says he could ask for money, right? He works. I came and asked you for nothing. Right? Because he's saying these other guys, the super apostles, as he names them. I love that. The super apostles. (laughs) Right? These guys who think they're really great, they're not taking the path of the cross. He said, I have the right to be able to be paid. But I'm doing this in this way so as to, like, this is my apostolic, like, credentials. So I think this is also, this is this theme here of, like, there are those who are interested in idle talk. They're interested in creating a following. They're interested in how they can monetize this. Uh, and they will spend a lot of time. I'm going to go over to First Timothy 1 here, which has some similar language, right? Uh they give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Right? You have folks who desire power, money, power. This is the exact opposite of the kind of guys that uh, Titus is supposed to be ordaining, right? Yep. So previously in the chapter he says, don't be violent, right? Mm-hmm. And then he uses language like muzzling. Yeah. Right? And so if you're not violent, how are you going to shut someone's mouth? You're, you're well, I think when he means violent, I think he means physical violence. Right, and... So through your moral authority, setting a good example, right? Because if you're but also at times I think like a shepherd, right? If there's wolves that are around the sheep, there are going to be time where you're going to have to like say you got to go, right? That there is a line of like you don't browbeat somebody, but right. well, what I mean is that then your flock has to listen to your authority on that, right? And the way you develop that authority is by being trustworthy. Um, the other thing in terms of the age we live in, I think it's important also to understand that the fastest growing form of Christianity in the United States is non-denominational Protestants, mm-hmm. totally independent churches that in effect these are led by people who have ordained themselves, they've set up their, or ordained by somebody else who ordained themselves, who ordained themselves. They, they appoint their own boards, they have no supervision, and this is the the fastest growing form of Christianity in America. And it's very American. It's very entrepreneurial, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the authority of that church is totally 
tied up in that one man standing in a pulpit holding the Bible up. And I think that to some degree that's a modern image of, of part of what he's preaching against here. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, be careful about who you follow. Um, well, it happens in all ages, but we got it really big today. Mm-hmm. Chrysostom, when he when he gets to these uh, passages, he the image that he uses, um, you know, there are those who uh, I'll, I'll just read this out loud for a contempt for money, anyone may easily attain. So anybody can get to a point, possibly, of you know, not wanting money. But to despise the honor that proceeds from the multitude requires a great effort, a philosophic temper, a certain angelic soul that reaches to the very summit of heaven. For there is no passion so tyrannical, so universally prevalent, in a greater or less degree indeed, but still everywhere. So he's, he's trying to, like, so there's a greed for money, but he's saying there's something even stronger in there besides money which is vainglory mm-hmm. wanting the praise of men and so he goes into his whole and i'm not gonna read the whole thing it's it's uh i'll read a little bit of it but he goes into this whole thing of because he's trying to he's preaching to people who are not on their way to be ordained to being bishops or elders right he's, and he's talking about who is not seduced by vainglory to want to be seen and applauded by people and so he draws up this whole idea of uh, a spiritual practice in order to fight against this, which is basically you have the theater of man and the theater mm-hmm. of God. And who are you doing things for, right? Mm-hmm. For the applause of men, or are you comparing yourself or drawing yourself into heaven itself so that you are doing things or God is the one that you're wanting to please? So he, um, uh, I'll read this out loud. It is for this reason called vainglory, what he's been talking about, this uh, um, desire to show oneself to others. Do you see the masks worn by stage players, how beautiful and splendid they are, fashioned to the extreme height of elegance? Can you show me any such real countenance? Can you show me a real face? By no means. What then? Do you ever fall in love with them? No, nobody falls in love with the mask, right? Mm. Why? It's well, Hollywood leaps to mind. <laughs> Go ahead. Why? Yeah. Because they're empty. They imitate beauty. They're not really beautiful. Mm. Human glory is empty in imitation of glory. It is not true glory. That beauty only which is natural, which is within, is lasting. That which is put on externally often deceals deformity, conceals it from men until the evening. But when the theater ends, when it breaks up and the masks are taken off, each everyone appears the way that they really are, right? So he hmm. calls for us to uh, not uh, enjoy the honor, the applause of men, but hmm. to, as much as possible, see ourselves in our situation as uh, standing before God, uh, retire from the earth, look to that theater that is in heaven, uh, and then specifically brings it to remember that all of this is going to come to in the end with the end with the day of judgment where the theater of God is going to be what is <laughs> by theater in that sense he means like the, the realm right the, mm-hmm. the place in which reality is actually happening Father isn't this why apostolic succession is so important apostolic succession is definitely a part of uh, I'll say the scaffolding or the structure yeah. or the skeleton, the skeleton that is yeah. 
necessarily it doesn't ne necessarily uh, guarantee no. right because no. Nestorius and all sorts of ordained what was Arius a presbyter yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> where does heresy come from within the church Did, these false teachers are within the church, right? Yeah. So, but yes, it is one of those things, and this is very early in the church where they start saying, uh, well, what's your pedigree? How do we know that you're telling the truth? Well, because my teacher was taught by someone who grew up at the feet of John the Apostle, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that tie back there. Uh, I, I want to spend just a minute. Where, how are we on time? All right. I want to finish on this. Uh, this, this quote from Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Does anyone know where that comes from? This is a trope, and it's throughout. Chrysostom talks about it, too, because I looked outside of Chrysostom, mm -hmm. and it's in general, it's not just Chrysostom, but it's everybody, basically. This was a quote from uh, a famous poem, and it's floating around. The Cretans had a tomb for Jupiter in Crete. Right. Mm -hmm. <coughs> How do you have a tomb for Jupiter? This idol. It's not real. Like, they're lying. <laughs> There's no way that a god could have a tomb because that's a whole against the whole idea of their idea of God. So this is, he's saying like, like Cretans themselves, they have this uh, saying of a Cretan, that what we know that there is a tendency here. So he's kind of using this as an example, right? Uh, they, they'll lie about stuff. <laughs> Jupiter's obviously not in the tomb here. And this is throughout, like, later commentators or, and secular writers, not just Christians, talk about how the Cretans think they have the tomb of Jupiter down there. And this is the context where this quote comes from. Uh, so Paul, and what I wanted to say about this, Paul, because Christism takes a moment and just talks, how is, why is Paul not just using scripture here? He's, he's quoting a random, like, Greek poet. Uh, Paul does this right at the Areopagus. Mm -hmm. uh, he says and quotes one of their authors like, to the unknown God. Uh, and this is where Chrysostom <clears throat> talks about how God uses all sorts of things <clears throat> in order to basically set the hook to be able to appeal to all sorts of people. So uh, God, he does not uh, conduct by angel or prophet or apostle or an evangelist uh, but when uh, he's talking about the nativity, right, by a star, right, that's how he draws the three wise men. He has a star because they're studying the stars, right? So he is able to bring them to Christ through their studying of stars by having a star guide them. So this is a broader idea in the early church uh, that there is the idea of stealing the gold from the Egyptians, mm -hmm. right? Because what does God tell Moses and all of them when they're leaving Egypt what to do? Go ask from the households and get all the gold that you can for the Egyptians because we're going to take it and we're going to build our temple with it. So the idea in the early church is where you find truth, where you find something that's good, and it's something that can be helpful, use it. Right? This is, uh, I, I love this line. This is what I really wanted, why I wanted to talk about this. <laughs> because God, in using everything, Chrysostom has this beautiful picture of how God tries to use all of these various ways to speak to us, to knock on the door of our heart, to, you know, enlighten us. He talks about in trying to reach out and to reach us. He says, for nowhere does he consider his own dignity, but he's always doing what is profitable for us. Uh, 
if a father considers it not his own dignity, but talks, uh, the translation, this is a Victorian translation, lispingly with his children, <laughs> like baby talk. Mm. If, he, if a father doesn't think about like my dignity as a man, but when he's talking to his kids and he calls meat and drink not by their Greek names, so he's like, do you want your little <laughs> Right? Like, this is the image that Christendom is using. Uh, but he does childish and barbarous words. How much more does God do this for us? Oh, wow. Which I, when I came across that, I was like, Christendom, you can sound so like, <clears throat> and then he's like, you know how a dad goes, come on, eat your food. Like, <laughs> that's how God does everything possible to try and bring us to him. Uh, he'll do it through poets. He'll do it through art. He'll do it through uh, television. He'll do all sorts of things in order to prick us to be able to like make us look for transcendence, to be able to do something, uh, even if in the context we're talking about the tomb of Jupiter, right? Like, but he's going to use that to be able, as much as possible, to speak a truth about something to bring people to him. So I just love that image of this is how Chrysostom thinks about God. That God is going to goo goo gaga with us in order to make sure that we're fed. Hmm. My major course at Denver Seminary, and the one we're trying to restart at St. Glad's if we ever get a chance, is called Exegete the Culture. Hmm. In other words, try to find out if there's anything the culture is saying. And the whole idea of that, it's a missionary structure. Um, you try to find the things the culture is asking that are worthy of response, the things the church can't ignore. And right now, a battle over what is and what isn't gender and what isn't male and what isn't female. We don't get that one. Well, I think there, there's, and beyond that, there's all sorts of other things that call out to be able to be addressed. And if we only focus on certain ones to not talk about the other ones, then we're going to be lost too. Well, I wasn't saying that's the only thing I'm I know, I know, I know. So it's 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 a trend right back out of Rome. Yeah. So I think that we. I'm going to hit one more thing, uh, not tonight, but I'm going to basically say we just finished one, but I'm going to at least bring up one more thing uh, <laughs> before we hit, head over uh, into chapter two. Does anyone have any last questions? Or All right, let's end with prayer. Lord, now let us tell thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen the salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. A light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Amen.